lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It is the first Sunday in summer and traditionally at Two Rivers, that's when we begin what we call summer shorts. And uh, that's why I'm wearing a short sleeve shirt, and you can see the mosquito bites up and down my arm. But year, uh, a while back, we were meeting at North Charleston Elementary School in their gymnatorium or gymnasium. That particular summer, the air condition went out. And so I had the privilege each Sunday, and the lights would go out. We would, the, the, all the lights, for those of you that were with us back then, you might remember, the, the, it was like all the power just, just shut down. And so I had the privilege to preach to a bunch of sweaty people. I could just see people. They were either trying to stay awake, you know, from the, the breakfast that they had sitting on their stomach in a warm room and as I was droning on, or they just sat there and they just sweat. And so the leaders came to me and they said, We've got to do something. You know, we, we've, we've got to do something. And uh, your 45-minute sermons are not cutting it. It's just not helping, you know. We hate to speak against preaching, you know, but make it into two parts. And so I really tried to have briefer, shorter sermons while we were sweating it out that summer. Now, two things. If you're a visitor with us, a newcomer, um, <clears throat> I can't keep preaching short sermons. I, it's not within my being. It's all I can do to try to contain myself for the summer to have 25-minute sermons rather than 45-minute sermons. It's all I can do. If you're a regular attender, you're going to find that there's some mornings that you're betrayed because the 25 goes to 35, it goes to 45, and then I'll work hard the next week to get back to 25. But we are in summer shorts, and we have begun a series called Putting down the sin that we put up with. Putting down the sin, and I didn't put plural there, it's singular because I want you throughout this summer to identify, this is between you and God, I want you, as I said last week, to ask the Holy Spirit who loves us so much and is tasked with shaping us to be the sons and daughters of God in the image of Christ uh, that we were designed to be, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you that particular sin that you have long put up with. Perhaps you've justified that sin in your life, or perhaps you've rationalized to say, there's no hope, it's always going to be there. Or maybe you've just said, it's just such a small thing. You know, it's not like murder, you know, it's just a small little thing. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the sin that many of us, many of us have long put up with in our life, and that is anger. And it's ordinary anger. It's not anger at some social injustice. I'm not going to address that this morning. Don't have time. It's not the, the anger that you feel when you've really, really been wronged or hurt. No, it's more the resentment or the grudge bearing or the lack of forgiveness for a slight. It's ordinary anger. And it more often than not is not something that we say to someone 
but we withhold forgiveness of them, of that offense, that slight, that criticism, that, um, that little thing that they did that we found offensive, it's more often as not seen in the form of resentment, not something that we necessarily say, but something that we think whenever we see that person. We make them to be nothing. We establish a you-nothing attitude. When we see them, we're more likely to not say anything but think, you-nothing. You're small. You, you're, you're smaller than me. And we sneer. It's like a you-nothing. All right. Now, I'm glad we don't know anybody in the room that struggles with that one. Maybe your sin's going to come up next week. But we tend to tolerate that. Now, I, <clears throat> I just finished reading a book. Um, it, just, it was intriguing to me. It was called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Killer. I don't know if any of you read that. I, I like those books that will, um, will give you history. They'll write a novel uh, around history. You know, that it's, it's kind of like actual places that exist and actual history, and then they do it. Well, this was pretty far-fetched. I mean, like... Uh, John Wilkes Booth was a vampire, you know, and he was gunning for Abraham. And, and uh, I mean, all these things, uh, you know, just how they wove it into the history of the Civil War and how Abe Lincoln, you know, he was the great log sp splitter, the rail former. Well, he used that axe to kill vampires. Well, <clears throat> it got me to thinking, you know, how do you kill certain, uh, you know, imaginary monsters? And so... <clears throat> We're told that with a vampire, you know, it's a stake through the heart. And, and, and yet, zombies, a stake through the heart won't work. So I Googled. You know, you can find out anything when you Google it. I Googled, and everybody pointed to this particular book about this particular author who recommended how to kill zombies. Now, some of you are saying, this is the silliest introduction. You know what? I was, I was at a homeowners association dinner last night and I had someone come up to me and they asked me, they said, look, do you believe that they're zombies? And I'm like, I mean, this is, I live in a pretty respectable neighborhood, okay? Not all, not all my neighbors are crazy. And this was not one of the crazy ones. And I was like, no, I don't believe. And they said, well, then how do you explain that man who ate the face off of this other guy? He was a zombie, I know. And they had to put him down. And I was like, no, 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 no. Besides, that's not the way you put down a, a zombie because you can't just shoot them. The way that you kill a zombie, okay, some people, if you're a newcomer, you're never coming back to this church, I know. But the way you kill a zombie is that you've got to get their brain. You've got to destroy their brain. You've got to, like, take their brain matter out. You've got to get the brain away from that brain cord, that spinal cord, you got to detach it from their body. And by the way, just cutting their head off doesn't work. Because it's like the Pirates of the Caribbean that time where the, one of the things got its head cut off and he was still kind of crawling along. Because the brain has to change or else it's a still walking dead person. Now, in, in our combating, in our putting down, and that means killing, and our putting down the sin of ordinary anger that we put up with, it's not as easy as simply 
self-control, self-discipline, and changing on the external. And it is something that's going to have to take place in a change of our thinking. Our mind is going to have to change or else we're going to live and just be in that area. We're going to be not freed and living in joy, but we're going to be full of resentment and grudge holding and we're, not, we're going to fail in forgiving other people and we're going to get bitter. We're not going to be Christians, little Christ. We're not going to bear the image of Christ as He designs us and has called us to be. As He has forgiven us, we will not be forgiving of others. As He looks at every person and says, you will spend eternity somewhere. You are made and created in God's image. And so every person, every person has value. There is a know-nothing person out there. There is, a, there is, a, there is not a person out there that we can truly say you nothing. And when we do that, we do not image God in whose image we're being shaped and crafted and molded in. I want to show you a couple of things from the scriptures in the time remain. Here is Jesus Christ and he's coming along and he's saying in verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The Apostle Paul, if you go over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not, give, uh, <clears throat> do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And then down in verse 31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away, put down, killed, along, you know, along with all malice. So here you have Jesus Christ commanding us not to be anger, angry with our brother. And this is the ordinary kind of anger when you think of really resentment, or sneering at someone, or just kind of murdering their character, by just saying, you, you nothing, you, you small person. And Paul comes along and he accents this as a command and says, put down in your life, do not tolerate anger and malice and clamor and all of those things. But he also says, there is a type of anger that is righteous. I mean, God gets angry. I mean, God has wrath. Jesus gets angry. Remember, he turns over the tables uh, in, of the money changers in the temple. So he's not talking about those instances of anger that is just. A good way to describe it is this. When you see, if you have a family member or a friend such that they would fall in that category of brother, when you look at them, and particularly if they are struggling with an addiction and it's destroying them, you can look at them and you are so frustrated that they've gone back to it again. And you are so angry at the, the dealer or the source. Or you're so angry at what it's doing to that person. And oh, you're just so frustrated with them. But in your, in your heart of hearts, it's because you love them. You're not angry with them. It's just all the things that are destroying them. That's a good definition for God's anger. God's angry at sin. Not, he's not angry with us. He's angry at the sin that destroys our lives. Another way to do it is you look at someone 
and you get angry not because you love them and not because you wish that person well, but you're angry with them and you just kind of sneer and you kind of, in your mind, fantasize. You would never murder them, but you just fantasize the things that you would like to do to them. You know, I would barbecue this person over a slow spit if I had an opportunity. You know, God, if they don't get that promotion, you know, I could, I could be really happy. You know, if they don't make the sale, or they don't make the grade, or they don't get the guy, that would make me really happy. Or if he gets the gal and it doesn't work out, oh, man, that is so good, because I wanted her. And he's nothing. You see what's up? It's not murder, but the seeds, the seeds of murder are there in our anger. Now, I'm way off outline, but if you look back earlier, Jesus Christ here, he says, your righteousness, your right living, your right thinking, your right actions has got to exceed that of the Pharisees. He says, don't be guilty of, uh, he says, be mindful of the percentages. He said, if you relax even the smallest of my commands, then you'll be small in my kingdom. If you'll keep all of my commands, a higher percentage of my commands, you'll be great in my kingdom. In fact, if you look at the Pharisees, I mean, think about like the Amish, you know. The, the, the Pharisees, many of them, uh, lived in an area called Qumran. And it was a very monastic lifestyle. It was very secluded. And I mean, they had rules for everything. And they kept them by and large. They kept them. And Jesus is saying, hey, ordinary dudes and dudettes, you've got to be not only as righteous and act like the Pharisees, but superior to them. Are you comfortable with that? I'm not initially because it forces me to ask the question and say, now wait a minute, are you saying that in order to get into heaven, I've got to do all this stuff and I've got to do it better than these guys? Jesus is saying that the, the righteousness that is to exceed the Pharisees is not so much by degrees as it is kind. Or let me put it to you another way. The kind of righteousness that you have is to exceed the kind of righteousness that the Pharisees have. The kind of righteousness that the Pharisees have is external. It's all external. The kind of righteousness that you are to have, the motivation is internal. Let me give you an example. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, I used to preach the Sermon on the Mount. Whenever you get toward the end of it, he starts talking about there's, 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 two, you know, there's two different houses. You know, there's, one is built on the sand, one is built on the rock. There's two trees. There's a good tree and there's a bad tree. And then there's two types over here. And then there's two doors over here. And then there's the sheep and then there are the goats. And I used to think, well, it's the good people that do the right things and it's the bad people that don't do anything. Okay? So it's good and it's bad. That was wrong. Because if you look, when Christ, for example, addresses prayer, he doesn't talk about people that are praying and people that are not praying. What he talks about are people that are praying to be seen 
external and people who pray go to their father in secret and meet with God as a father. And giving to the poor, he says, they're those that give. It's not that there's nobody not giving to the poor. He says, it's just that they're giving and it's all showy. But he says, when you give to the poor, sacrificially, do it without great fanfare. And that's where Jesus comes along and he's saying, look, I'm not telling you that you have to exceed them with the externals. But he says, it has to come from the heart. Time doesn't permit me but if you wanted to go and do cross-references, you can find that, number one, the Lord looks on the heart over externals. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Secondly, the Lord writes His command that He wants us to practice. He writes His laws on this heart. Jeremiah 31, 33. And the Lord gives His Spirit to cause us to walk in the law that He puts on our hearts so that we're not alone. Ezekiel 36, verse 27. All this to say is that He gives us a new heart, a new attitude, a new mind. So we're not competing with the Pharisees on the externals. What we're doing is He's saying, now your attitude because of your new heart should be influenced by my spirit and you yield to that spirit and walk in that spirit as it acts upon the new heart. So that obedience is not something to earn his favor. Obedience in this is something in response to his favor. Or theologically, theologically, what's afoot here is that just our actions, our actions are the effect, effect of our justification. Our actions of not being angry, our actions of forgiving, are the effect of my being loved and my being forgiven. If it's not that, it's the Pharisee. The Pharisee says, Kenny, though you've hurt me, everybody, please notice, I forgive you. God, How's that? You like me a little bit more, right? That's saying I'm earning God's favor by what I do. That's why Christ can come along and he says, and he gives an example here. He gives an example and he says, when you're walking down the street, don't, don't look at someone and label them foolish and label them raka. Raka, in, it wasn't, it's a footnote in the ESV. But in many of your Bibles, the Aramaic, Raka, is still there. And you might think, well, why didn't the translators just, like they did in the ESV, why didn't the translators just put, you know, you know just this insult? Because it's not, because Raka is very, very hard to define. Because it's not simply saying, you fool. It's probably something that they would never say aloud. But it says, I earlier said, it's an attitude. It means empty or nothing. It's looking at a person and saying, you're empty. You have no value. You're nothing to me. And you sneer. And you do not wish that person well. And that's where Christ comes along and he says, this is something that if you want to know if you're in God's kingdom, 
if you want evidence of whether or not you're a Christian or not, is your heart led increasingly to look at other people and not label them. Even the people that we have, you know, we would say are lowly people, that you can look at anyone and say, you have value. You're not empty. You are something, whether you know it or not. Whether I even see it at this point, because I can say you are something because God looks at me and says that I'm something. Okay, are we clear on that? Now, how are you doing? Let's just go out and do it, right? Let's just go out and do that, and that would exceed all the religious people that still struggle with resentment and everything. We got it. God doesn't resent us. God's not angry with us anymore. So I'm not mad at anybody. Let's just go out and do it. Um, one of our favorite, it's actually a, a, a friend of our, ours, but it's one of my favorite authors. She hasn't written a lot, but she is so clear in sharing the gospel in her writing. Her name is called Rosemary Miller. And she shares, she makes herself very vulnerable by sharing how the gospel's at work in her life. And in her book, From Fear to Freedom, which the reflection in your bulletin is taken from, she shares an instance where her husband, Jack, who's a pastor, has invited a homeless man, Don, to come into their house. And before, they had had conditions that whenever they took someone in their house, that they would help with, if it was a male, they would help with the outside chores. Well, Don had been brought up, as it were, in, uh, in, in the city, so he didn't know how to use a rake. He didn't know how to use a lawnmower. And he wasn't really willing to do that. And Rosemary, who had really prided herself as being a good Christian, a nice woman, began to resent Don and then later her husband Jack for not making Don do the yard work. She began to, every time she saw her husband, she would, Rock, you fool! Get this guy to work. And every time she saw Don, she would begin, Rock, you empty-headed nothing. And then it struck her. Let me read just a couple of excerpts. Um, I sometimes would go and pray, and I would cry for an hour. I would cry tears of self-pity, of condemnation for all of this anger that was growing, for the raging frustration I would leave more exhausted than when I came in. But in all of this, I never once took a close look at my faith life or repented of my own sins. I resented Don and I had a growing resentment to Jack. And the thing that was pounding on me was the law that said, love your neighbor as yourself. She said, the image of my goodness was being tarnished before my very eyes. I finally realized the fatal truth about myself. I was not Rosemary, the lover of people. I was Rosemary, the hater. I could not love and accept a person different from me, especially someone who was working against me. I had discovered within myself the power to hate. The Apostle Paul knew all about it. He wrote, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life, actually brought death. 
Rosemary found in herself hate growing where it had not been manifest before. She found anger growing. And she said she prayed about it. But she never looked to her heart and said, I repent of my sin. I repent of the anger that I've had, the resentment that I had. Now change my heart. And change my heart, not by a wagging finger saying, you're right, you haven't been loving, now get up and love that person if it kills you. No. She came to discover God as her Father coming to her and not speaking to her so much about her lack of love for others, but the abundance of His love for her. And that's the Gospel. The Gospel is, is that we can love difficult people, and we all have them. And we can begin to change our attitude toward people that we look at as nothing or that we resent when we realize that God looks at us and He doesn't see nothing. And when He looks at us who are difficult people in ourselves, He comes to us and He serves us and He loves us and He embraces us and He boasts about us as His own people his own sons and daughters. And then he looks at us and he says, now, now that I have loved you, go and love others. For some this morning, for some this morning, we're going to need to begin to pray. It's going to be a summer project. But we're going to begin to pray that the Holy Spirit show me places or an individual that I'm resenting. And let me tell you that I don't exactly understand how it would have looked in the early church when Jesus said, if you have your gift at the altar and this comes to mind, leave your gift and go. But I think I know what it would look like today in today's church it would look like this, that as you've been listening and as you've been sitting there, a name came to mind. Somebody came, their face or their, their name came to mind and you said, wow, my heart, my heart feels the burden. My heart feels the, the sting. I have been resenting that person. I need to forgive them. I need to let them out of the debtor's prison of my heart. I need to quit rehearsing the slight or the offense or the wrong that they've done to me. And as I've been forgiven of my debts and I've been reminded of that, I see it in this table. I, as soon as I can get out of here, the immediacy is emphasized by Jesus. As soon as I can get out of here, I won't talk myself out of it. I won't delay. I'm going to go and I'm going to do it. And by the way, my understanding of the scripture is that that person knows that you're doing it. You don't just walk out of here in the parking lot and say, I'm free. Lord, I forgive them. I release them. No, you've got to call them on the phone. And don't just send them an email. I mean, I guess you could send them an email. 
How about a handwritten note? How about a handwritten note? Or better yet, a face-to-face in coffee and say, you may not know this about me because I look pretty good, but I've, I've become more hateful towards you than loving. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. We're commanded to do so, but it's a command where Jesus Christ goes first. He shows us the way. For on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this represents my blood shed for you and the washing away of all sins. He came not to abolish the law, but he fulfilled it. Living a perfectly obedient life that was transferred to our account and to us. And by his death, he paid the penalty for all of our lawlessness and our law breaking. And now, with that at work in our heart, it compels us to a new obedience that exceeds that of the Pharisees. Let's pray. Father, there's only one thing that will quench the fire that blazes at time in resentment and anger toward others. And that's your shed blood that quenched God's anger, his rightful wrath against me. And seeing that record established and seeing God's anger totally satisfied, then Father, I cannot be angry at anyone. Remind me of your great love that it might compel me to love others greatly. And to this end, we pray that you use these elements to strengthen this new heart. In Christ's name, amen. You'll find the liturgy in the program, and I want to invite our elders.